Well, when we began our study of the Gospel of Matthew last week, we learned that Matthew's goal at the beginning of his letter was to prove that Jesus of Nazareth was more than just a good teacher, right? Or that he was a good prophet, or that he was more than just a miracle worker, but that he was the fulfillment of every Old Testament prophecy concerning the promised Jewish Savior. And so, here in the book of Matthew, drawing a line from David would have made it clear that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But as we learned last week, Matthew had more on his mind than laying out the family tree of Jesus. Matthew intentionally inserted the names of four people. Remember this? There were four women to be exact, which was not the typical practice when recounting the genealogy of important people, at least in the Jewish pattern. And, and the question is like, why would he do this? Why, why would Matthew do this? Why would he go through the trouble of inserting four women? Because Matthew had a very personal reason to include very unlikely people because people who came from questionable backgrounds, whose stories were intertwined in very questionable situations, the good news story of Jesus that Matthew saw himself become a part of was this story. That God used unlikely people to accomplish remarkable things. And to prove to his readers that he wasn't just picking random people with questionable backgrounds. Because you could read through the first part of the genealogy like, okay. right. So remember what we're trying to do. Remember when we study the scripture, we first understand that the Bible was not written, what, to us. But it was written, what, for us. And so in order for us to understand the scripture, first we have to take a look at it. And really delve down and say, like, what did it look like to the people it was first written to? As we talked about last week, this was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so, as we looked at this, the Jewish audience, they would have heard these names, and they would have been familiar with it, whether you were or not. And they would have gone like, oh, that was kind of weird. Why didn't he put Tamar in there? Oh, Bathsheba. Oh, we don't want to think about Rahab, the prostitute. And then there's Uriah's wife and the whole scandal behind that. But... Maybe Matthew's just, he's just, he's not really, ta- he's not really talking about that, like the idea that God uses these unlikely people with very questionable backgrounds to create this good news story of the gospel that's, re- that's revealed in Jesus Christ. He's not doing that on purpose, is he? Well, <laughs> to prove that that was what he was doing, that he wasn't just picking random people with questionable backgrounds from the genealogy of one who would come from the line of David, the one we refer to as Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew goes on to remind his readers just what kind of people God was using to write his good news. Now, this is the part a lot of us skip, but this is the part I want to read with you today. Matthew chapter chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, and Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. And after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Sheashtel, and Sheashtel fathered Zerubbabel. Now, I know what you're saying. 
what a great passage of scripture. I just feel so edified by that. And you know what? That spoke to my heart about this situation going on at work. And I, now I know what to do. Like, no, actually nobody ever says that. To the average reader of the Bible here in 2023, these names, I, I admit, they do not mean much. They do not mean much. But to the reader with deep Jewish roots, at this time, those who grew up with parents who told stories from the Hebrew Bible or were faithful synagogue attendees, these names actually did mean something. Question is, though, what did these, main, uh, what did these names mean? So here's what I want to do. If you have something to write with, this is a great time. Uh, or you can just write in your Bibles. They, I, I'm going to take you just on a short little history lesson. If you would just entreat me, because I, I don't know, maybe you might be an Old Testament scholar, so this is just kind of rehashing some stuff that you already know about. But I, I'm, I'm guessing you might not know these things, and it's very interesting, and I'd love to give you some things that you could look at on your own when you go home on your own. But we're going to take a quick little history timeline. We're going to look at this line of David and... We're going to just see what kind of people these were. After Solomon's death, uh, some of you know this, Solomon died. Solomon was the son of David, and the kingdom split into two, right? Some of you may or may not know this. It became two kings, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was called the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was called the kingdom of Judah. And the line of David would rule the southern kingdom while the northern kingdom would be ruled by actually one of Solomon's servants. It's a, it's a very dramatic thing of like how it went down. You should go read it yourself. It's a lot of drama, if you like drama. But following the lineage of David, which is what Matthew does, Matthew introduces us to Rehoboam, and then the kings following of the southern kingdom. And what were these kings like? Well, we already know, well, not us, when I say we, I mean the original readers would know that the kings of the northern kingdom, they were the worst of the worst. They were just terrible. Everybody knows it. They were terrible. But the southern kingdom, they were, they were thought of as like, oh, that was Israel's own. The kingdom of Judah. They were great. But when you look at their history, and everybody knew this, they probably weren't as great as you would think. In, for, in fact, in 1 Kings 14.22, it tells us that under Rehoboam's leadership, the people of the kingdom of Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, what kind of good king is that? And then there's Abijah in 1 Kings 15.3, which tells us that he walked in all the sins of his father before him that he had committed, and he was not wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord as God, his ancestor David, had been. Okay, so far we're zero for two on the good kings. Then next one that Matthew references, Asa. Asa was a little bit better, a little bit better, but in 1 Kings 15, 14, it tells us that he was wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord, but in a moment of weakness, and you should read this, in a moment of weakness, he relied on a partnership with another king to help him win a war than rather trust the Lord. Now, I know none of you have ever done that in your life. <laughs> Come to a situation where you felt your back against the wall, and in the moment where you could have trusted God, you trusted your resources before you trusted God. None of you ever did that, but this is what this guy did, Second Chronicles 16. So he was okay, but yet he was not remembered well because when the time came to prove that he trusted God the most, he relied on his friends. He relied on what he thought was right. 
And then there's Jehoshaphat, according to 1 Kings 22:43. Jehoshaphat was devoted to God like his father Asa, but under his leadership, there was like active idol worship. So here we go from here. We go from Asa to Jehoshaphat. And then 2 Kings 8.18 tells us Joram did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, so far we got one, two, three. We're, we're, at, we're at a negative right now. None of these kings are doing any good. Chronicles, uh, first, 1 Chronicles 26, 16 and 21 tells us that uh, success went to Uzziah's head and that he disobeyed the Lord by trying to burn incense himself in the temple and then God struck him with leprosy. 2 Chronicles 27, 8 to 9 tells us that Jotham did better than his dad but also didn't hesitate to point out that people still worshipped other gods during his reign. So there was still idolatry happening under the reign of these kings. And then there was Ahaz. Some of you know Ahaz, right? You've heard of Ahaz, right? He had a wife, by the way. And we often use this phrase, not in a very positive way. If I said, you are such a Jezebel. Does anyone ever heard that phrase? Right? Okay. Right? That's not a good thing. So if you ever get called a Jezebel, that's not good. And this is where it comes from, Ahaz. Ahaz was a king, and not only did he not do what was right in the sight of the Lord... He even, listen, he sacrificed his son. He sacrificed his son imitating the detestable practices of pagan nations around them. This is the heritage of the, the Israelites. Okay, and this, I'm telling you, they would have known this story. Because some of you even know who Ahaz is, and you're not even Jewish. Then there was Hezekiah, by comparison to the kings that preceded him. He was a good king, but he struggled with pride. You know, and I know... None of you struggle with pride. But this character flaw, listen, it's a really good story. This character flaw of his, he was good, and so things went well from him. But then he made a, a fatal flaw. Uh, one time, someone, one, of, one of his friends came. It was from a neighboring kingdom. And he was so proud of all the accomplishments that he actually showed this king all of the riches all of the things that, and, and it wasn't in this humility, like, look what God has done. It was like, <laughs> you know, come over here, check this out, hey, check this out. Come, come take a look at what I have done. What, and then, and it says there in the scripture that he would be, he would, he would be reprimanded by the a prophet who would actually tell him, because you did this, that kingdom will actually take over you. And that kingdom to which he showed all of the riches, eventually they went back and they went like, man, that was pretty impressive you know what, I think I want that stuff. And they ended up taking it away from him. Then things only got worse as Manasseh took over as king. As the king who had the longest reign among the kings of Judah, he had a laundry list of accolades to his name. You, don't, you might not know who Manasseh is, but the people of Israel would have, again, he was the longest reigning king of the southern king of Judah. And, and, and here are just a few things that, if you know this king, here's, here's what he did. One, he followed practices of idolatry of other nations. He built shrines that were destroyed by Hezekiah. And then he built altars to Baal or Baal, right? And some of you remember the story about the, 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 the prophets of Baal, right? And, and anyways, that, you just got to Google it. And then he placed an image of Asherah in the, in the temple. He placed an idol in the temple. And then like Ahaz, he also burned his son as an offering. Okay, this guy is terrible. Can you get the sense already? So when they said Manasseh, when, when Matthew wrote Manasseh, there would have been a visceral type of like, ooh, okay, okay, we get where you're going from. And on top of that, Manasseh 
practice illicit forms of divination and fortune-telling, consulting false prophets. And, and this is a word I had to look up uh, when I read about this in, <laughs> in, in my study this week. He, he, he practiced necromancy. Does anyone know what necromancy is? Okay, good. You're smarter than me. Awesome. But necromancy is, is, you know, actually have fun just looking it up on Google. Why don't you just go? And I could actually go on and on, but I think you get the point. When Matthew included the names of women in the first part of the genealogy, some might have missed the nuance of what Matthew was insinuating. But as Matthew went on to write, as he went on to write these other names of kings from the line of Judah, it would have been very, very apparent that Matthew was not holding back from proving that God is not limited in his ability to accomplish his mission in the world because of broken and imperfect people. God is not limited by the brokenness around us to accomplish great things. And I think if there's a message that we as followers of Jesus need to be encouraged more than anything as we look at the world around us, because it could seem like all is going to I don't know if this is the proper way of using this phrase, but like, you know, hell in a handbasket, right? There's that phrase, right? If everything was going to not, this is it. Jerusalem's and, I mean, right? But listen, God is not limited in his ability to accomplish his mission in the world because of broken and imperfect people. But more importantly, God is also not limited by people the world sees as insignificant. In fact, we only know of the people who followed Zerubbabel in this list after verse 12 because of Matthew. Outside of him, there's actually no record of these people. Now, on a side note, it doesn't mean that there wasn't any kind of genealogy recorded. In fact, skeptics of the Bible will say, look here, Matthew is making up people's names Historian Julius Africanus, that literally is his name, Julius Africanus, who lived during the late 2nd century, reported that, as one uh, Bible scholar wrote, he said, Herod had destroyed Jewish family archives, including those of the Davidic family of Ruth, to prevent challenges to his own mixed pedigree. Right? So you have, you have, basically, you had a uh, Herod who was, paranoid <laughs> that someone would recognize just in like, you know, those movies you see like, oh, did you know you're heir to the line? Oh no. Well then, and, and you, you hear all these stories just so that nothing like that happened. What it is, he destroyed records of genealogy. So no one could figure out whether or not they were related to so-and-so to so-and-so. But here's the thing. And as we look at generations before us today, we can know the genealogy, Right. Why? Because we can talk about it. And so this was something that was definitely known. But we wouldn't have known who these people are if it, were, if it wasn't without Matthew. And that's why we read here. Look, verse 13. After the exile, the Babylon, Jeconiah, fathered Sheastel, Sheastel, fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, some of you might remember, he helped the rebuilding of the walls of the temple. And then Zerubbabel fathered Abiud, Abiud fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azar, Azar fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Achim, Achim fathered Eliud, Eliud fathered Eleazar, Eleazar fathered Mathan, and Mathan fathered 
Jacob. So we get to this point, and they would have understood, the readers would have understood that Matthew was communicating that God is never limited by our past to accomplish what is in present. He just read people whose lives were entwined in captivity in Babylon. Insignificant people. Lives didn't accomplish much. These were not kings during these times. These were just fathers trying their best to make the most of a very terrible situation. Being trapped in Babylon, in a godless country, against their will, but knowing that God had promised to them, as we know very popularly in Jeremiah 29, that he did have a what? Plan for them. Plan to prosper them. But first, they were going to have to get through the hardship that was Babylon. This, of course, then brings us to Joseph. But notice how Joseph is acknowledged compared to the other father figures in Matthew's genealogy. When we read ahead, it says here, you know, so-and-so fathered so-and-so, and so-and-so fathered so-and-so, right? We get that. But then look at this, what it says in verse 16. Jacob fathered Joseph. And then what should it say there? And then Joseph, what? Fathered. That's what it should say. What does it say? It says this. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. So what we have here is Jesus is not referred to as the father of uh, Joseph is not referred to as the father of Jesus. And, and this is for a reason. We'll find more about it in verses 18 through 25. But Matthew goes on to say in verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David into the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, from the exile to Babylon into the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I don't know if... Anyone ever studied the book of Matthew? Like, you ever been in a study? Okay, so sometimes when you go into these studies, if you ever find yourself studying the book of Matthew, a lot of pastors, a lot of Bible teachers will get to this point about the 14. There's a lot of like numerology study. It's like fascinating stuff. Uh, but I'll just tell you this, because some people want to know like, why, what is fixation on this idea of 14? Like, why does he want to talk about this? And I, I'll just tell you this. I've read all of the interpretations um, and I've looked at all the different evidence that they have and um, as a pastor, <laughs> I'll tell you this, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if any of them are correct. correct or I don't know what, I, I, I can't confidently stand up and tell you here what is my conviction what, on, on the, the specifications of the number 14. And You should go look at it yourself. It, 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 interesting enough, it's, it's, it's interesting to take a look at, but even the Bible scholars will say, like, this is just kind of trying to figure it out. Nobody really knows what is the significance of this idea of 14. But what's most important, what is not disputed as Matthew is writing this, was that he was proving to his audience that he had done his homework on whether or not Jesus came from the line of David and that they can believe that Jesus is the promised Savior or Messiah, or as they would have been familiar in the Hebrew, Messiah, which was translated to Christos in Greek, which is why we say in the regular English, Christ. This is where this comes from. This is what Matthew wanted to prove, that Jesus was the Christ. And here's what Matthew has to say about the origin story of Jesus, of Nazareth. Verse 18. 
The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. First thing we learn about Joseph is that he is engaged to Mary. For those of you who not be familiar with the customs of engagement to marriage during biblical times, among Jewish people, there were essentially three steps to marriage, right? Three steps to marriage. First of all, there was the arrangement to be engaged, right? This is a thing, arranged marriages. And this could happen when the bride and groom-to-be were relatively young, and it was often arranged by the parents. And then after that, there was the betrothal or the engagement period. And during that time of betrothal, it was usually about a year before the marriage ceremony, the couple were known as husband and wife. They were literally known as that, but they did not have intercourse with each other. In fact, the pledge to be married was legally binding, and only a bill of divorce could break it. And infidelity at that stage was considered adultery, punishable, guess what, by death, right? Because that's what the Jewish people love doing. They love stoning people, right? And that's what they could have done. And so you have the uh, arrangement or the engagement, and then you have the betrothal, or sometimes called the engagement, and then you have marriage, right? Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today, right? Marriage. Marriage took place after the wedding. This took place after the wedding, after the betrothal period. You were married when the two became what? One. So uh, it goes without saying that when it was discovered that Mary was pregnant during the betrothal period, <laughs> that middle period, Mary and Joseph's reputation was on the line. And according to Jewish law, Joseph could have called her out and accused her of adultery to save face. But that's not what he did. Verse 19. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. According to this passage of scripture and an understanding of Jewish tradition, Joseph was on a trajectory of building a life with Mary. And based on his reaction to Mary's announcement that she was pregnant, we know that from Luke. He didn't find it on his own. It proves that his relationship with Mary was more than just an arrangement made by his parents. We've all seen the Disney movies, right? The arranged marriage. I don't really love him. They're all looking for that out. Joseph wasn't looking for an out. At a minimum, he respected her enough to want to go through with what's referred to as a secret divorce. But a kind of divorce that would in no way bring her harm. But no, make, listen, make no mistake. The decision weighed heavy on Joseph. If it didn't, then what we read next wouldn't have been Joseph's conversation with an angel of the Lord. Verse 20, But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Notice he doesn't say, don't be mad. Right? Because that would be the correct response when you find out that the person you're engaged to is having someone else's baby. That's not what he says. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. 
Because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus. All of you named Josh. Yeah, that's, that's, that's basically Jesus. Yeshua, right, in the Hebrew. Yahshua. Which means God saves. Because he will what? Save their people from their sins. And so that, the reason why he says because he will save the people, that's he was giving the, the, he was making it clear. Like this is the name, this is what Jesus will do. But it's also his name. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been following Jesus for decades. And regardless how many times God has proven time, and time again that where he guides, he provides. Whenever God provides, fear always seems to be an overwhelming foundation that happens to be in my heart or in my life. Or in my mind, just before, (laughs) just before I step into God's plan. I mean, think about your own journey of faith. When God has shown up the most in your life, I think if you were to notice, there in that moment was an opportunity for great amounts of fear, confusion, It was almost as though your life was so desperate that if God didn't show up, everything was going to blow up. But this is why we know the Lord is Jehovah Jireh, because he provides for us. If there's anything I've learned over a lifetime of learning to face my fears is that fear is simply not doubting what God can do, but the reality of who God is. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. Fear is harboring belief, intentional or unintentional, that God is not in control. And that he does not have our best interests in mind. That is the foundation of fear. That's why it's so easy for us to fall into the trap of believing that we are the ones that need to be in control of our lives to get ourselves together, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to proverbially say, which, by the way, I think Mythbusters, Mythid, you lit, uh, they, 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 Mythbusters, what do you call it? Debunked it, or they, whatever, what is the phrase? Uh, debunked, right? You can't lift yourself up by the bootstraps. And the dirty little secret to fear is that it can cause us to believe, like Adam and Eve were deceived into believing in the garden. Listen, that we are the only ones who know what is best for us. This is why I love parent-child dedications, because it's an admission before God and your family and all of those you love that we actually don't have what it takes in of ourselves to raise this child in the way of the Lord, but that we need God. We need his word. And then we need his people, right? And why do we think this way? Why do we think that we know what's best for us? Because fear at its center is an outflow of a perceived loss of control. And for many, myself included, fear can turn us into control freaks. Somebody please tell me that I'm not the only one who in life brings the unexpected, grabs for 
any part of our life that we feel we can manage, and then we try to grab control of it. I can't control my life, but at least I can control how clean my house is. Am I speaking to anybody out there? I can't control my life, but at least I can control how much I work out. Or I can't control my life, but at least, you know, I can get on a diet and I can feel like I'm controlling something. I can't control the other stuff. I can't control my life, but at least I can control how much screen time I consume. My life is is going crazy, but at least I can, this is one thing I can control. And I don't know what was going on in the moment when Joseph came face to face with the angel who told him, do not be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. But if I could imagine, if I could imagine just for a moment what he would have prayed to God in that moment, I think it could have sounded something like one author who was inspired to himself imagine what would have happened in this moment. It's Max Lucado. It's one of my wife's favorite authors. And so every time I quote from him, I I, I get out of the doghouse just a little bit more. So I'm going to quote him today. But I love this. I love how Max Lucado writes this. And if I was to guess what that prayer would have sounded like, I think it would have sounded something like this. God, I'm a carpenter. I make things fit. I square off edges. I follow the plumb line. I measure twice before I cut once. Surprises are not the friend of a builder. I like to know the plan. I like to see the plan before I begin. But this time, I'm not the builder. Am I, Lord? I'm not the builder. This time, I'm the tool, aren't I? I'm a hammer in your grip. A nail between your fingers. A chisel in your hand. This project, it's yours, God. Not mine. And here's a fair question I think we could ask of ourselves. When faced with life's inevitable, unexpected circumstances, is your initial reaction to take control and grab a tool to fix things? Or is it to release control and submit your life to God as a tool with which He can accomplish His mission, His will, in the world. Let's finish up the rest of this so we can at least say we read verse by verse to our passage today. Verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the Lord, through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and will give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. And he named him, guess what? Jesus. In verse 19, Matthew states, this is how the birth of Christ came about. But he doesn't really tell us about the birth of Jesus, does he? Luke is actually the only gospel writer that tells us the details about the birth of Jesus. Instead, of telling us where Jesus was born, Matthew tells us where Jesus came from. To prove once again that Jesus was the Messiah that the prophets wrote about in the scripture and does so through the eyes of a carpenter from Nazareth by the name of Joseph. And instead of telling us about the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, the journey to Bethlehem, remember, the lack of room, the manger, 
Matthew tells us about circumstances going on within. The heart of a man who would be obedient to God. And so fear was met with the promise of Emmanuel. Or as Matthew would record, Jesus saying to his disciples, with the last words of his account of the gospel of Jesus. These are his last words. He writes this. He writes Jesus saying this. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are Matthew's last words. If you didn't know this, you should know this. If you've never been told this, I want you to know this today. Your life, or even the circumstances surrounding your life, cannot get in the way of God accomplishing His will in the world. But, it's a big but, I cannot lie. But, your life can be a display of God's will through your increasing trust, belief, and submission to Jesus as Savior and Lord. Oh, and on top of that, (laughs) you have the promise that through your fears, through the confusion, and through all the difficult times of life, Jesus will be with you always, even to the end of the age. 